This is my story. This is my song. Raising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Raising my Savior all the day long. Hello and welcome back to the Wayward Podcast, where the word paves the way. Today is the first step of a thousand miles. It is the first episode of a brand new series. A series that will probably go on for quite a while. Today we are beginning a Bible story series. And I mentioned in my last episode, it was a, an, an announcement episode, that about a year or two ago, I was trying to reconnect with the depths and the riches of Scripture's story. And so I sat down, and I slowly worked my way through Scripture, writing out summaries of the overall Bible story. And it started out as a summary, but it became quite detailed. (laughs) But I believe a lot of those details were important because they helped move the story forward. A lot of those details were tied to the themes of the story, the characters, the events, the threads of where the story goes. So, yeah, this summary, it's going to be detailed, but detailed in a way that I believe has purpose and that drives or propels the story forward. And ultimately, my goal is to nurture and cultivate a worldview of wonder and worship by creating clarity into Scripture's story. And the way I intend to do that is by following a five-stage story structure. And that structure is going to be uh, part one, creation, part two, the fall, part three, Israel, part four, Messiah, part five, new creation. Now, I am not the first one to use that structure. Many more Bible teachers and students out there have used it before. Uh, I find that structure to be very helpful, so that's how I'm going to lean into it. And there are going to be several little thematic threads that tie into that structure and help develop and expand it and move it along. And I... I, uh, I don't want this to be like a lecture series, although there are times where some of the details might sound like it is. Um, But I I, I also don't want it to be like a kind of a sermon or whatever. I mean, I'm aiming it for it to be a conversation where the details of a Bible study overlap with, I guess, the cadence of a devotional. So a conversation that is both educational and encouraging, and ultimately enriches how we understand our story as it is being lived out within the reality of Scripture's story. And sometimes what these conversations become will depend greatly on the material that is being focused on in uh, in any given episode. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that because I don't want to 
digress or delay any any longer. So the first stage of our series is creation. So that means that the beginning of our Bible story series is going to begin in the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the Bible story. And that will take us to the book of Genesis. But we're not really going to be getting into any of the creation story today. Because as soon as we even get into the story, there are a couple of things that emerge that need to be discussed first. A lot of it has to do with our posture. Our posture of heart and mind. Have you ever just sat with the Bible in your hands and thought about the journey its story has had to go through or has gone through to get into your hands? Thinking about that journey in terms of world history is one thing. But then have you ever thought about that journey on a scale of cosmic or celestial dimensions? In those terms, what does it all even mean to be able to hold this Bible in our hands? And what does it mean for the posture of our heart and mind towards this book? So, before we even get into the scripture story, first, today, I want us to try and wrestle with quantifying how we we even came to be in possession of this story and how we can live in relationship to it. Okay? That's going to be our task for today. Um, we're going to begin in at the beginning. If you have a Bible, if you want to follow along, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, but that's as far as we're getting. Um, just kind of going to linger on that verse for a bit. Um and there are several different ways that this verse has been translated or could be translated. Um, for example, there's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. Or, another way to put it is, when God began to create the heavens and the earth. And yet another way that it has been translated is, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, there are different possible ways to translate this verse. But what it comes down to is that amidst a period, referred to as a beginning, the heavens and earth creatively and functionally unfolded, initiated by a figure referred to as God. Now, if we break this down, it, it could appear like we are working with three features, three significant features. And these features are going to be important uh, for how we go forward today. Uh, it's really, it's really uh, kind of setting up a framework that we're going to be kind of working with. And if you're listening on the, or uh, right, right now, this, uh, part of this is just going to be like a, the podcast episode, but later on, 
there's going to be another version that I post onto YouTube that I hope will include uh, notes and, you know, diagrams that might help to further uh, uh, aid this conversation. But for right now, if you're just on the podcast, you just need to listen along. So, um, but yeah, there's going to be, I think there are three features here that play into this conversation. The first one is the when. A timely period within which the heavens and the earth's creation and functions exist and unfold. A second feature is the what, and that is the heavens and the earth were created. And finally, there is the who, referring to the God who initiated and sustains creation's existence and function. So those are the three features that I observe in the text, but another observation that we might notice here is that what is being created and when it is being created is preceded by who is creating it. The who exists and abides before the when begins or the what emerges. The God who initiates the beginning and creates the heavens and earth also resides prior to the when and beyond the what. So I'm going to try and illustrate this. And again, uh, later on, on on the YouTube version, I'll try to include uh, some diagrams that, that really try to illustrate this. But right now, just try to imagine the when... Let's, let's illustrate that with a circle, okay, or a sphere. This, this circle or sphere of when represents the confines of time and space. And within this sphere is the what, which is the interactive functional stuff of creation. You can imagine sky, moon, mountains, water, trees, human beings, our five senses, our capacity to reason. Okay? So this combination of when and what, let's simply refer to this confined sphere as reality. Okay? Reality. Basically, everything human beings are able to interact with, think about, explore, wonder at, reason with, interpret, perceive, act upon, our entire human reality takes place within the confines of time and place and function. But, before this reality ever emerged, and beyond its current confines of time and place and function, is the who, whom brought it into being. So, if this is a reasonable illustration of Genesis 1-1, 
And if we continue to look at this framework and let it shape how we imagine the general makeup of reality and perceive the scriptures as the story that guides or interprets that reality, one of the questions we are eventually forced to wrestle with is just whose story is this? Does this story belong to the when or to the confines of time and space? Well, there are ways in which the scriptural story seems to stem from certain periods of time or be an expression of the story's reality at work within a certain time period. For for example, the Genesis creation literature, it shares both commonalities and divergences with other ancient Near Eastern literature. Um, The book of Isaiah probably shared several authors across the periods of Israel's divided kingdom, uh, its exile, and post-exile. And while the book of Daniel takes place within the events of exile, it was probably written down during the intertestamental period. So yes, Scripture does partially belong to the confines of when, developing and unfolding through the passage and progression of time in history. But that's okay, because when else is revelation and inspiration supposed to happen? But might the Bible story also belong to the what? Or to the interactive, functional stuff of this world? Again, very much so. Pretty much every scriptural story after another is shaped by context. There are places like Eden to set the stage for goodness and harmony, and the exile after the fall sets the stage for the estrangement and difficulties and violence to follow. Characters like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob set the stage for God's restoration. Covenants and promised lands set the stage for restored relationships and blessed homes. The law God gives to Moses sets the stage for the community God sought to create. And if you keep reading through the rest of the scriptural story, you will discover that the Bible is very much in tune with what the world is really like. The Bible knows the horrors of this world, and it doesn't ignore them at all or sugarcoat them. In very intimate specifics, the Bible speaks of the world we often find ourselves living in. And I mean that in both the beautiful ways and the ugly ways, in ways that can often seem depraved and ways that are experiencing redemption. So yes, Scripture does also partially belong to the contexts and substances of the what. And I'm thankful for that, because if it didn't, it wouldn't be a story that humans could relate to, or receive correction or blessing from. But even if we are able to connect to the scriptural story by abiding within this when and what reality, Does that mean the story of Scripture belongs to us? We may often think it does. And 
because it is our nature to think that everything within this reality we, we perceive somehow belongs to us or revolves around us, it's understandable that we may think that the scriptural story is somehow also subjective to our agendas or to our truths. But if we take a pause from the enjoyment of our enlightened and elitist estates, and if we begin to trace those nicely bound Bibles that we take for granted back to and through the generations of language students and scholars and linguists who spent their lives huddled in corner offices, studying and translating the available manuscript editions and wrestling with syntax, and then go further back to the monks and scribes who copied and transcribed those multiple manuscripts, and then further back to the councils of Christian servants and stewards who honored and preserved those texts, and then even further back to the widespread church congregations who acknowledged these texts' authority and lived their lives practicing their content, and then even further back to the early Christians who actually witnessed Christ and his works and his resurrection and experienced the Spirit's power and grace and documented their experiences and lived theologies for future generations, and then for even further back to the post-exilic Jewish communities who both documented the scriptural story they had lived thus far, as well as the prophetic imaginations and promises they held on to in the meantime, and then even further back from there, through the exile periods, when they were estranged from the land and their purpose, and then even further back to the, to the days of the kings, when they began to be better capable of recording the story onto papyrus or scrolls, and then even further back to the days when the story was memorized, learned, rehearsed, retold, and preserved as a sacred and structured oral history of their privileged relationship with God, and then even further back to the days of the patriarchs who received the revelatory covenants of promise. Ultimately, I think our tracings may reach a point where we begin to see that while the scriptural story that was being developed and unfolded through time was unveiling several significant characters and events, those features of this when and what reality were all along being primarily initiated by, carried by, shaped by the pre-existent abiding who. While shaped through the when, and emerging amidst the context of the what, the scriptural story predominantly stems from outside our perceived reality in the mind and the heart of the who. And what this basically means is that God's presence precedes the story. God's presence precedes the story. God is the cosmic character who has always abided as distinctly other from our 
perceived reality. God's abiding presence is the preceding reality and power behind the story, shaping the story, propelling the story. So, having arrived at this pivotal point, we must now ask, what does God's pre-existing presence have to do with the scriptural story and how we relate to it? There are three thoughts that come to mind I think could help set us up for perceiving God's external presence and relating to the scriptural story that shapes our internal reality. Three thoughts. First, God's pre-existing presence gives formation to the reality and the scriptural story. Something that we need to understand about presence, especially a presence that is dynamic, is that presence is inherently formational. Presence is inherently formational. What gets formed is dependent on the conditions that are already there, already present. And that is true in so many different ways. It is true for climates. If you have a hot, dry, arid climate, very little is given formation. But in a climate with more fluctuating temperatures, uh, water sources, rain, snow, the land will experience more formation of plant growth, grass, leaves, produce. And sim similarly, this is also true in terms of agriculture. The presence of a planter or a farmer makes all the difference in whether or not crops will grow. Informational presence is also true in child development. The presence of parents, of fathers and mothers, will make all the difference to a child's health. This is altogether true in this case as well. God's presence is the formational soil from out of which all reality emerges. The reality that was given formation and the story that unfolded through time and place of this world's reality was altogether dependent on the pre-existent presence of God. And while we're talking about God's formation, of the scriptural story and our perceptions of reality, there might be a question that is uncomfortable but fair to ask. How do we know God isn't just a figure of our own perceptions? To be fair, we don't. It would be a mistake to not say that this framework we have been discussing is absolutely a framework we take by faith. And to push it further, it would also be fair to say that God is a figure of our perception. But when I say that God is a figure of our perception, it's also fair to ask, isn't that the point? What I'm getting at is that inspiration and revelation requires the use of perception. It is necessary for divine inspiration or divine revelation 
to be conceived or manifested within our perception. Otherwise, there's no way it can be accessed or cognized. So, to repeat, God's pre-existing sovereign presence gives formation to reality and the scriptural story that helps us interpret reality. And by doing so, and this is the second thought, God's pre-existing presence gives both authority and credibility to the scriptural story. Now, I am framing these two ideas as kind of like correlations of each other, uh, external, internal correlations of one another, as the pre-existent presence abiding outside the confines of time and space, God is preeminent, residing in soul supremacy and possessing soul sovereignty. So in the moment God speaks reality into existence, it is his sovereign authority that brings it into being. Authority means that God I'm sorry, authority means that as the pre-existing sovereign, God has the right to give formation to reality. But that's looking at God's authority externally, from outside our reality. From inside reality, where we are, God's external authority correlates or translates to internal credibility. As inhabitants of this when and what reality, and as beholders of its beauty and function, we see that what God's authority has accomplished lends him credibility. Because of the beauty and the function of this realm, we are able to take God's authority seriously, thereby taking his scriptural story seriously. And that's why, or... Uh, how when you sometimes hear the phrase, the authority of scripture or the authority of the word, what is really meant there is the authority of God infused in the formation of the, of the scriptural story. Authority that is translated into credibility when we read and receive God's story. And as God's authority takes root in our hearts, and minds in the form of credibility, we begin to undergo changes in relationship with God and the scriptural story. And that brings us to the third thought, that God's pre-existing presence gives us a posture of humility and worship within the scriptural story. As inhabitants of this when and what reality, when we begin to contemplate and ponder that the scriptural story has shaped this world's reality, actually originated from outside the confines of time and space, in the mind and heart of the sovereign pre-existing God, we may be suddenly stunned with the realization that we don't own the scriptural story. And if you feel that to be kind of humiliating or uncomfortable, or you're tempted to resist it, I encourage you, don't. Sit with that thought a while and soak it in. You and I don't own the scriptural story. 
in accepting that can be an act of humility. Being able to admit to ourselves and to others that the knowledge we have of Scripture is something we don't own or control places our hearts and minds into a posture of humility. And the reason this posture of humility is so important is because there are so many times when we talk about Scripture and talk about God, we do so from a posture of pride, a posture of certainty, a posture of assertiveness, where we somehow believe or act like God's authority somehow translates to our authority. We fall into the trap of thinking that we get it that we own it, and that we can wield it. And if you look around, it won't take long before you begin to see examples of Bible-believing individuals who wield it in a way that does more harm than good. People who talk about God as if they have harnessed the majesty and have dispelled the mystery. When we use the Bible as a tool to only tell people what to do. We've become a people of words, but no real knowledge or wisdom. We inadvertently darken the counsel of God's word, and we empty worship of its wonder. Which is why a posture of humility positions our hearts and minds to see clearly and rightly the only true owner of Scripture, and the only object worthy of our worship. When the posture of our hearts and minds remains fixed on the pre-existing presence of God, our perceptions remain anchored and moored to the God who makes this when and what reality his own. When the posture of our hearts and minds remains fixed on the pre-existing presence of God, we we perceive ourselves as a child of His, as a living image in the reality He has formed, as a character in the story He has been unfolding. Only with such a fixed focus are we able to enter into the scriptural story and perceive it as the worldview for this reality God has ordained for us to live and worship within. So, as we prepare to enter into the scriptural story, I encourage you that next time you pick up your Bible and you hold it in your hands, contemplate how this story stems from beyond our confines of time and place originating in the celestial mind and heart of the pre-existing sovereign God. And as you contemplate all that, ponder also how you might regularly look to him as the author and perfecter of the faith that enables us to live in this world with a dynamic sense of wonder and worship. I want to thank you for joining me here today. I hope that this content has been helpful. I hope that it helps ready our minds and hearts as we prepare to begin this series and enter into the wide and wondrous world of God's Word. 
Thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the Wayward Podcast, where the word paves the way. This is my story. This is my song. Raising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Sing my Savior.